So Money Episode 346, Lisa Gersh. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. So Money is brought to you today by Wix.com. Need a website? Why not do it yourself with Wix.com? No matter what business you're in, Wix.com has something for you. Used by more than 75 million people worldwide, Wix.com makes it easy to get your website live today. You need to get the word out about your business. It all starts with a stunning website with hundreds of designer made customizable templates to choose from the drag and drop editor and even video backgrounds. There's no coding needed. You don't need to be a programmer or designer to create something beautiful. You can do it yourself with Wix.com. The site empowers business owners to create their own professional websites every day. When you're running your own business, you're bound to be busy, too busy, too busy worrying about your budget, too busy scheduling appointments, too busy to build a website for your business. And because you're too busy, it has to be easy. And that's where Wix.com comes in. With Wix, it's easy and free. Go to Wix.com to create your own website today. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnoosh Tarabi. Welcoming to the show today, the chief executive officer of Goop. Have you heard of Goop? Goop. I like saying Goop. Goopy, goop. It's a lifestyle website that features fashion, travel, food, all actionable content. And it is the brainchild of, you know her, actress Gwyneth Paltrow. Now, prior to arriving at Goop, Lisa Gersh served as president and CEO of Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia. She also co-founded Oxygen Media, serving as both the president and chief operating officer. She and her team ultimately sold Oxygen to NBC for about a billion dollars. We talk about that in our conversation. We also discuss, as Lisa has been at the helm of many companies, the right way for someone to ask for a raise on the job. She's been on the receiving end of that for many years. She has been in charge of hiring and promotions. And so from her perspective, what is a smart way? What's the strategy to ask for more money on the job? Lisa is also very resourceful. You kind of have to be as a CEO and a problem solver. Going back all the way to college when she discovered that her parents were unable to afford college. So how did she find the way to pay her own way through college? How did she strategize? And we talk about the future of Goop. It's a it's a company in its infancy, although it has tremendous potential. And under her leadership over the last year and change, it's uh, transformed immensely. And Lisa has even used the term world domination in their future. So here we go. Without further ado, Lisa Gersh. Lisa Gersh, welcome to So Money. What a privilege to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Fun to be here. Yeah. So uh, my audience and I very excited to get to learn more about you, your background, and your new your new role as CEO of Goop. And you've been there for a little over a year. I was reading up about some of your goals for Goop and you've used the term world domination. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Is that your philosophy when it comes to business, go big or go home? You know, I think it's become my philosophy and I'm not sure I initially started out that way, but 
I feel like all the projects I've been involved in ended up getting really big, really fast, whether it was Oxygen, which we started really as this idea originally as being an internet site for women in 1998 and ended up being the first multi-platform brand ever really launched and a big idea, or it was uh, things I worked on in various projects. I created a project called Education Nation, which started out as a little project, and then the President of the United States showed up. So I think so. I think that's sort of, if I had to pick my one skill set in business, I would say it's taking an idea and making it really big. You also have this very rich, very storied, very significant experience addressing women through all, I would say, many of your experiences with whether it was at Oxygen, Martha Stewart, now at Goop, um, the, the target market, women. Who is the female consumer at Goop? Can you share with us a little bit about who that is and how maybe since you've come to Goop, you've you've reanalyzed that? I, I know that in the early days of Goop, there was some criticism that it was a little inaccessible for the average woman. The price points were too high. I was just on the site. I think that there's a lot more affordability there now. How conscious are you of your female target audience and, and what she can afford? Well, you know, I've always loved the audience, um, maybe because I'm part of it. And interestingly, when I was at Oxygen and we were building that brand, the brand was targeted at, we would say, 18 to 34-year-olds. And I found myself as a 45-year-old sitting outside what was the quote-unquote target demographic. So I always think of demographics pretty loosely in terms of age. I always... Um, think of them more as psychographics. And so who is that customer? Who is that girl that you're catering to? Who is your audience? And so Goop is very similar. I think we think of it from a straight-up demographic point of view as 25 to 45, but at 57 years old, I feel very much part of the psychographic of Goop. I'm a person who wants to go someplace, read and discover really interesting topics that some that I might not have thought I was even thinking about. And then I want to be shown interesting product and not overwhelmed by it. So if I'm looking for a pair of black leather pants, I want to be told these are the best black leather pants. You do not have to look at the hundreds of pairs of black leather pants on the market to find them. And by the way, they're at a price point that falls sort of in the middle of that category. So we think about it all the time. We think about making this site. Everyone likes accessible product and it's really so cool when we find like the greatest dress that's accessible and it's not a well-known designer and we can put it on the site. But then everyone really likes to look at those well-known designers and their beautiful product and have an opportunity and some of our customers buy them and some of our customers just look at them and that's okay. You've described but what they do know. What they do know when they get there is someone's really thought about this collection of products and it's been highly curated. And that's how you describe Goop is that it's this contextual commerce brand where um, everything is curated. You re- the, the idea is that you read something, then you want to buy it or you want to do something with what you've just learned about. Is That that seems to be a relatively new model, right? I, I, in your experience, 10 years ago, did this model exist? Oh my gosh, no. I mean, it was, there's always been this line in the media space, church and state between actually recommending product, even though that's what advertisers do, and selling product. No one's ever wanted to do that. Although in 19, in 2000, when we launched Oxygen, we launched with a show called She Commerce. Terrible name, not the greatest show at the time, but the concept of, let's talk about product because that's, as women, a lot of what we do, what we need. We want to know from our friends what they're looking at, what they're buying, because that's part of what we do as women. And 
putting it into context really makes sense. When I think about Goop today, I think about it less of uh, contextual commerce has taken on a weird meaning. I think of it as actionable content because not all of our content relates to product you can buy. Some of our content is really great recipes, so it's more about doing something. So it's content that I read and I can take action against. And the beauty of it is that if there were to be an exit strategy for a company like this, you were saying in previous interviews I've listened to that it may go to an edit, you might partner with an editorial company. It could be a commerce company. It could be a retail brand. And that is great for a company like Goop because it seems like the possibilities, the growth possibilities are endless. Right. Look, I think, I think the whole digital world has taken down that wall of church and state between content and commerce. And now how those two relate to each other in a single brand is what I think a lot of people are trying to figure out in part because advertising has become so fragmented. It's hard for a media brand just to be supported by advertising. And it's hard for a commerce brand to really get noticed. The way you can get noticed and the way you can help consumers understand what it is they're buying is through great content. And that's what we do. What's it like working with Gwyneth Paltrow? Most of us know her as the lovely, talented actress. Who is Gwyneth behind the scenes and um, as a as a business partner? Well, from the behind the scenes, she's a great friend. She's got a wicked sense of humor. She's wickedly smart. She's an amazing mom. And she's just an incredible person to be around. I mean, and, you know, when you get to work with someone every day, I guess the idea that they're, yes, also a famous movie star sort of fades into the background and who they are in reality really comes to the front. And she's an incredible person who's decided she's had an amazing acting career and she'll always have an amazing acting career. She could do whatever she wants in that realm, but that she really wants to build a business and she's a fantastic collaborative partner. And I think that she has influenced other celebrities, actresses to, to, to not follow suit, but to really dabble in this lifestyle space. Some have been successful, some have not. What makes Gwyneth's light personality and her value system, uh, successful in, in the, in the commerce sense? I mean, why, why would she be more successful than another actress? And what's, what do you think is going on there? I mean, not everybody can, can do this. So what is different about her? I think in order, any any brand that becomes successful becomes successful because it has a set of principles. And Gwyneth, as a brand, people sort of associate her with a set of values and principles, and she's incredibly authentic and authoritative in the areas in which she speaks. So she can talk about food. She's a best-selling cookbook author. So when she talks about a recipe, it's authentic. It's authoritative. She's a style icon. So when she talks about fashion, she's authentic. She's authoritative. There's so many. She's traveled all over the world making movies and doing other projects. So she can talk about those areas. So she has that authenticity and that authoritativeness that really makes a brand have a set of values like any other brand gets started. It doesn't have to be necessarily associated with a person, but in case, in this case it is, and in a bunch of other cases it is. And, you know, Gwyneth's really generous with her time and her friends, and this is not a zero-sum game. There isn't only one lifestyle brand that's going to to succeed. So I think she's really generous with her friends, and other people have been interested in starting this space. And I think it's great that she's been at the forefront of it. 
You've had a very busy, I guess, 15 months now at, at Goop. You've uh, helped steer the company to a place now where you're publishing daily, selling ads. You've launched a skincare line. I also noticed that you have a, a press imprint. Uh, isn't, is there anything that you haven't accomplished in that you wanted to accomplish in the first year that is now top priority in 2016? Um, you know, we had a great year. We got a lot done. You never think you get as much done as you want to get done. You know, you could work 24 seven and never get it all done. So you have to really be focused on the fact that you're building business for the long term. It's a marathon, not a sprint. Um, I think we're really focused this year on our customer service and our backend technology and really building out that experience so that when you come to the site, taking action is easier than it's been in the past. And so really focused on 2016 and also building out the other verticals and the other product and making the content great and hiring great people and really building the business in a, in a smart way. You have to sort of avoid the hyper growth pressure of the VC world. And, mm -hmm. you know, we're not, we are a technology driven company, but we're not an app and we're not hyper growth were a brand that's going to build and become more successful over time. Is that a deliberate strategy? I mean, if someone came to your doorstep and said, here's $50 million, what are the pros and cons to that? And, and I mean, because I think what you're saying is so true. There's there's a lot of frothiness right now in the VC world and these companies are getting valued at, at figures that I, you know, I can't even count that high. And you wonder about really what's the substance there? What's the, is that really a true valuation? As a CEO, what what are your, is your inclination to an infusion of capital? Do, do you want to sort of try to do this on your own? I mean, you have a first round. Are you looking for more money? Do, I mean, I think we were really successful in raising capital in our Series A. Um, they call it a Series A because there will very likely be a Series B. Um, otherwise, it would just be your funding and you'd be done. Um, but you want to get it an appropriate valuation um, each round that makes sense. Um, and you don't want to raise too much money at once. You, you don't want your pockets to be sitting there so flush with cash, you're not precious about it. You want everyone to feel um, that every dollar spent has to be meaningful. So I like the idea of raising the amount of capital we need to get to the next phase, which is really building out the back end, launching the verticals, um, and really proving out the business model. And then you really want to take the scale and you'd probably go out and raise another round. Well, speaking of money, if we may transition now to some of my so money questions, I ask all guests these mm -hmm. questions to learn more about their financial philosophies and their the way that they they think and act with their money. What's your financial philosophy, Lisa, uh, for yourself? Um, you know, I believe in working really hard and having that hard work pay off. I think everyone should be compensated for the work that they do. Um, I've worked hard my whole life from a very early age, um, and I've always sought out a position which would compensate me well. When I was 13, uh, I needed a job, and rather than babysit for a dollar an hour, now I'm really aging myself that anyone would ever get paid a dollar an hour, <laughs> I took a night course and learned how to umpire girls softball. So I was umpiring girls softball who were the same age I was at the age of 13 for $5 an hour. 
how do you negotiate for yourself now? How, how do you, <laughs> any advice for women as they're looking to, uh, as you said, you know, get paid for what they're, what they're worth and, um, you know, to, to make sure that they're yeah. compensated well. You know, women are notoriously bad at asking for raises. So one of the things I do when I'm doing a review with someone or looking at their position in the company is I try to say, okay, now ask me for a raise. Because sometimes someone will come to me and say, I want more responsibility, I want this job, and they won't actually ask me for a raise. And I was like, wow, you need to ask me for a raise. Um, I don't always give them the raise, but I want, I want to be asked. And I want to teach people to ask for a raise. So I think it's really important that you stick up for yourself. I also think it's really important that everyone understand that it is actually a negotiation and it is not personal. And I think that's a really important thing for people to learn. And so from your perspective, what is the right way to ask for a raise? If someone's coming to you for a promotion, more money, what, what do you need to hear? What do you need to see? What's the, what, how does the meeting have to go? So I love when someone comes and tells me what they've accomplished. Here's what I've accomplished for you. And here's what I've done for the company. I'm really proud of all the things I've done. And then generally I say, well, what do you want to do next? And they say, here are the five new things I want to take on. Here's why I think I'm capable of doing it. And here's what I think the compensation for that position is. And I want them to have some basis for it. Like, have you thought about it? Have you talked to other people? Do you know? When you're and that's around, usually a pretty successful conversation with me. Yeah. And, and for women, and there's been studies done about the demeanor, right? So men can go in and go fist to the table. I deserve this. I want to get this. This is why I think I'm worth it. How, how, how important is demeanor in a meeting? And, and how does gender Im, 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 impact that, if, if at all? You know, I, I think demeanor is always important. I think being logical and not emotional is really important in a conversation about a raise. This is not about emotion. This is about what I'm worth and what I can accomplish. You know, I've worked so much with women in the past since basically 2000, 70% of oxygen was female, probably 90% of goop is female. So I'm really, I don't <laughs> often experience the male way of doing things, which is very nice, but I do know it. And I am always encouraging people I work with to have that sort of logical demeanor and take the emotion out of the conversation. Good advice. You talked about that softball story when you were a kid. What's another story from childhood uh, that was a financial moment for you that now as an adult growing up through the years, you were, we would, you might reflect on that as a, as a very, um, pivotal moment uh, or an, an, an experience that taught you a lot about money as a kid? Sure. So when I was in high school, um, my brother was a, a junior and I was a freshman in high school. My brother came to me and he said, you know what? Mom and dad don't have any money. Um, my parents didn't go to college and we're not going to college because they don't have any money. And I kind of looked at him and I said, that's crazy. I was like fifth in my high school class. I was a pretty smart kid. I was very studious. I loved school. I always thought I was going to college. I said, well, that just doesn't make sense. So I started doing some, and this was pre-Google, obviously, pre-internet, pre-computers, trying to do some research on how kids who don't have money go to college. My brother wanted to go to college, and I ultimately was going to go to college. So I started doing some research. I found out that there were these things called student loans. At the time, they were 1%. I found that there were these grants. One of them was called a Basic Educational Opportunity Grant, and I applied for my brother. 
And I got rejected and I reapplied and I reapplied until I got enough money for my brother to go to college. Oh and so by God. the time I was ready to go to college, <laughs> I knew how to get money to go to college. You could and write a book I went on it. in part. Oh. I could have written a book on it. My father used to say to me, you should write a book on this. I don't, I don't really want to write a book. I just want to go to college. <laughs> um, and so I went on a 1% student loan and a basic educational opportunity grant. We both went to state schools. Actually, we went to SUNY Binghamton together. We were really close. I wanted to go to school with him. And it was a great experience to learn that it, just because you're not going to go the conventional way, the way people go, their parents send them to college, there's a way to get things done if you really want to. And every summer I worked all summer so that I had spending money to go to school and I got great jobs waitressing because we made the most money. But I wanted to go mm-hmm. and I was going to go and I went and so did he. Sounds like you've always been solutions driven. And even in today, all your executive roles, you think that's in your DNA I do think it's in my DNA. I think it's funny. People always ask me because I have a twin sister. Um, twin? She didn't go to college because she didn't want to. Yeah, she didn't go to college because she didn't want to. But I'm solution-driven in one way, and she's solutions-driven in a very, really different way. Like, I really do look at my, I look at a problem. I'm, I'm like, I do puzzles, too. I do jigsaw puzzles and crossword puzzles, and I'm very, like, I look at something, and my brain just, finds the answer and it's the same thing with a jigsaw puzzle like I literally can pick the piece out of the box it's just the way my brain works she's like an emotionally driven person who solves emotional problems better than anyone I know so I suspect you did very well on the LSATs because <laughs> that's all like <laughs> and now analytics well, I, I, yeah I did well enough having not studied for them and not knowing you were supposed to study for them that I did well enough to get into law school. Lisa Gersh did not study for the LSATs. Look at her now. <laughs> you know, it's really funny because my kids are always saying how important it is what school they go to and how well they do. And I'm always saying, you know what? I don't think that's the, I don't think that's going to be the tipping point for anyone else. Me. I think it's helpful to get your foot in the door if you go to a great school and you do really well and that's all well and good. But at the end of the day, it's going to be about hard work and your ability to connect with people and your ability to be persuasive and your ability to stand up for yourself and get what you want. And when someone says, no, there's not enough money, figuring out how to get the money. This is another question I ask guests. Have you ever experienced a moment of financial failure? What happened and how did you work your your way through that? Well, the biggest financial failure, obviously, when I was in high school and my parents didn't have the money for us. But, you know, in business, when we were, you know, we're running oxygen, we, um, we were very creative with our financing. Um, in the beginning, it was such a big deal. We were launching this company. People were throwing, literally throwing money at us to start the business. This was, you know, 1998. It was a whole different world. It was really a bubble and you could raise money at almost any valuation that you wanted. And we were so full of ourselves that, you know, we basically said, no, 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 we have enough money. And then you wake up one day and you're like, wow, London Cable Network is really expensive and we don't have enough money. <laughs> um, so we're going to need to go back onto the market. At this point, the bubble had burst. And so you're back in the market in a burst bubble and a down round. And how you work your way around that is really interesting because not everybody's going to be happy at the end of that round. So you're going to be disappointing some people. But at the end of the day, if you keep your eye on the prize and the prize is building a successful cable network and you can communicate that, you can get people behind what is not as pleasant a decision as you would hope it would be. So 
in the aftermath of that, what was the guiding light? What was what ultimately got, I mean, oxygen's still around. <laughs> it made yeah, it. I mean, and we sold it to NBC for close to a billion dollars. So the guiding wow. light was we knew we could build this cable network. We were the only independent cable network to get launched and get distribution. We knew we could do it. Um, it was a ton of hard work and also an incredible amount of fun. I had the greatest partner in the world, Jerry Laybourne, doing it with me. And it was her brainchild, and it was just enormous amounts of fun, and also an enormous success to get it to sell it to a big media conglomerate and have them take it on, and it's still on the air. And that's exciting. Some of the shows we launched are still on the air, so that that was really fun. And the guiding light was, how do you get it there? We haven't even talked about your your time with Martha Stewart living on the media. What was the number one lesson you learned working, the business lesson you you learned working at uh, Martha Stewart's company? Well, you know, Martha Stewart was an interesting job for me. It was the first time I was a public company CEO. And, you know, one of the, one of the real reasons I was fascinated with her brand and fascinated with her and what she had started. And But a big part of it was my husband had said to me, Every successful executive should at one point point be a public company CEO. So there was that. Um, but I was really interested in the retail world and how those two worlds could be put together. Um, but for me, I thought a great lesson was there was this great merchandising business there. There was this great media business there. And my vision was let's put them together, sort of what Goop is today. But that wasn't the company's vision and that wasn't the company culture. And trying to make that kind of massive cultural change is really hard in an existing company. I'm, I'm curious now, as you are the CEO of Goop, how much of your job depends on taking what you've learned from all of your experiences at Martha's launching Oxygen and how much of it is inventive, you know, like coming up with new ideas that no one's ever tried before or there is no protocol, uh, what's the balance? The, you know, the experience is great. You, things seem to repeat themselves in business. So whether it's a, you know, question of what your engagement rates are on something versus what your rating is on a show, all of those things, the way you analyze those are the same, but the problem is different. So we are trying to invent something. So that's great. But learning to invent something is also something we learned to do at Oxygen because we created in 1999, there was no such thing as a multi-platform brand, as silly as that sounds today. No such thing as a multi-platform brand. So I fundamentally believe that five years from now, all content will be actionable. And the idea that we invented actionable content, people will forget about, <laughs> and that's what content will look like. It'll be actual, just like every media brand today is a multi-platform brand. Right. So the ability to invent and know that you're inventing something that ultimately will become part of the norm is something I think is really valuable to have learned. What are your habits, Lisa, your financial habits? Maybe just one thing that you do, <clears throat> excuse me, on a regular basis, daily, weekly, that helps you with your own personal finances. I have a fairly traditional marriage. So my husband, who's a former CPA accountant, <laughs> kind of deals with most of it. But he's a, I'm sorry, what was that? He's a former, I've, I didn't hear that. He's a former. He's a former accountant. My husband is now the president of iHeartMedia. Um is a former accountant. So I sort of, he divvying up the household responsibilities, more of it weighs on him on the finance world than on me. But, 
and it's important to divvy up financial home responsibilities because um, you can't do everything. But one of the things that I do do every single month, and I think this, people don't do, is I read every line of my credit card bill um, just to make sure it reminds me of what I've spent and, oh, why did I buy that? Or why didn't I buy that? Or are these charges for real? Or look at what we're spending. So that's one way for us since most everything today is on a credit card. So it's one way to really keep good tabs on what's going on. Absolutely. I mean, it's pretty basic, but I, there are months where I may not check the balance or not check the, the, the line items because it's automatically getting paid. So it's very easy to fall into that habit of not checking. So it's a good conscious reminder. Yes, it is. You mentioned you not being able to do it all. I can only imagine the sort of hours that you that you keep at work, and you know you're a mom and you have a, a personal life. When it comes to outsourcing, how do you uh, negotiate that in, in your household? Like, how do you decide what gets to get outsourced, what should get outsourced as far as tasks, and what you're willing to do? Um, you know, you do the things you love to do if you're fortunate enough to be in that position. So I love to cook. So cooking is something I'll do, not generally during the week because we're usually out or busy, but on the weekends, I love to cook. So that is a responsibility. And food shopping. I love food shopping. I don't know why. I love food shopping. I love going into market. I love picking out food. I know there's Instacart and all those other things and I'll use them if I have to, but I really prefer to go in myself. Um, but I've been really lucky. I, when my kids were little, we had the same person look after my kids from the time they were born until the last one just left for college, which was 25 years, which was amazing. And I've been really fortunate in that. So I had someone around to really help me because given my travel schedule, my husband's travel schedule, we really needed someone to help. Um, but that's been amazing. Well, this interview has been amazing. Lisa Gersh, thank you so much for sharing us all of your insights on how women can earn more, how you're balancing everything and your vision for Goop. Very exciting to see where this brand goes. I know as a consumer myself of Goop, it's a real page turner. I have to say it. It's hard to leave the oh, site. Great. It's beautiful. It's well executed. And I do notice that there's, uh, there's more variety for all sorts of consumers, you know, whether you have deep pockets or you're on a budget. There's probably something for everybody. So thank you for, uh, for inspiring us and wishing you the best 2016 possible. Thanks. And thanks for taking the time. That's a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Lisa Gersh and Goop, check out goop.com. You can also follow Goop on Twitter at Goop. All this information, transcripts, audio, comments from this episode available at somoneypodcast.com. And while you're there, click on Ask Farnoosh because that's how you and I can connect for the Friday episodes. I make the show all about your questions. If you have something that you want to ask me or if you want to share something with me, that's the best way to do it. And I will share it with the audience on the uh, upcoming Friday episode. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. Hope you're off to a great Monday and I hope your week is so money. So money.